Hi, it's Maria here. This is Alice in Wonderlab, a podcast about science and the women who make it. Young women who have set out on a lifelong exploration trip driven by curiosity and passion. In each episode, we get to know one Alice and discover the wonders of her research field. For this first episode, I talked to Georgia Stasi, a geologist and PhD candidate at the University of Liège in Belgium. Hi, my name is Georgia and my Wonder Lab is an underground mine. Welcome to Georgia's Wonder Lab. Let's see what we have here that comes either from a mine or from a quarry. Let's say, for instance, concealer. In the concealer, we can find the silica. That, uh, it's a white powdery mineral that can mattify the skin and can thicken up the cosmetic products. It's, uh, the silica is also what you can find in the quartz, basically. And uh, what about mascara? What am I putting on my eyelashes when I use mascara? The mascara that usually uh, everyone uses is the black one. And to give the color black, the industry uses the iron oxide. They use it as a colorant that gives the color black. Okay. And uh, blush? In the blush, we can find two different types of minerals. We can find the zinc that is used as a binding agent. And then we can also find the mica that is the shiny minerals that gives uh, all the reflection uh, when we put it on and with the lights that uh, comes on our face. Okay. And if I look around in my bathroom, what else contains minerals? I see the mirror, the glass panels of the shower the ceramic of the sink, the washing machine. So what you can find in the glass is the silica. So it's the same uh, type of mineral that we find in the concealer, for instance. Then you, everything that you have metallic, you also have all the, the sink. Mining the toilet, dates back to the prehistory of humanity. The oldest known underground mine is found in Swaziland, and it was dug more than 40,000 years ago. We all learned at school that in the ancient past, people would mine metals like flint and copper to make tools. Or stones for construction. The pyramids were among the first buildings made of quarried stones. But also minerals like ochre and malachite to make pigments for body painting and ceremonial use. Since the dawn of civilization, materials extracted from the earth are part of our everyday life. If you can't grow it, you have to mine it. One of the greatest advancements in mining practices was the introduction of gunpowder in the late Middle Ages. Explosions are still used today as a mining technique. And I don't know about you, but in my mind, the word mine evokes grim images of dynamite sticks, squeaky lifts plunging into the dark, unhealthy tunnels, noisy drills and underpaid men working in dangerous conditions. At best, chubby dwarfs merrily singing while they dig out precious stones. Well, as I have learned making this first episode of Alice in Wonderlab, things have changed quite a lot in the last 70 years or so. Machines have taken the place of men and miners are highly specialized workers. Today, mining is a high-tech industry and Georgia, our first Alice, is part of a team that is writing its future. My name is Georgia Stasi, I'm a geologist and I'm working at the Geological Survey of Belgium. 
I'm doing a PhD in applied geophysics at the University of Liège. It's focused on uh, imaging development for deep mineral exploration. Georgia is doing her doctoral research within a larger European project called RoboMiners. This project aims to develop a modular robot miner uh, that uh, it will be able to self-assemble and explore and dig the underground. She explained to me that the robot is bio-inspired. The idea behind the robot uh, is the little animals, the little burrowing animals or the moles that we can see in everyday life. The robot itself would be modular. The different models can be combined. So we can have a robot that can just drill and product the ore. One robot that maybe will just explore. And uh, they can also work in different types of environments. So they can work in a dry environment or in a flooded environment with water or with mud. They can uh, travel underwater, they can travel on grass, they can travel off gravel. And it is meant for small deposits that are difficult to access. In Europe, there are still a lot of uh, small deposits that are not being exploited because the main deposits uh, are found in Africa or in South America. They are not being exploited because they are too small and the technology that we have nowadays, the machines are too big. So we need small machine. And that's why RoboMiners is developing this type of robot. The robot will be 5 meters long and 80 centimeters of diameter. One of the positive points to have such a small robot is also the small-scale mining that will have a lower impact on the environment and can also be deployed in populated area. And as well, being a robot, uh, it doesn't suffer being under pressure or under a lot of temperature. So we can send the robot to explore deeper deposit. Just imagine that the deepest mine on Earth is around four kilometers. But uh, usually the regular size of the crust is around eight and ten kilometers depth. So we could have the chance to go deeper and to have also bigger deposit probably. For the moment we are just concentrating on the surface because it's there that we can go. The RoboMiners project is building a sort of robo-mole that will explore and dig the underground without messing up the surface. It will probably be less cute than a mole, but thanks to it, European countries will be able to extract raw minerals that are present locally but are currently inaccessible or unprofitable. And Georgia told me that some of these minerals are critical raw materials that we very much need for the so-called green transition. We could say then that the project has two green goals. On the one hand, making the mining industry less disruptive to the environment. On the other, increasing the supplies of the raw materials we need to develop sustainable technologies. The robot will perform several tasks. He will be able to move, then he will be able to drill and to transport the ore. And the final part is that he's going to be able to detect the ore. And here is Georgia's role in the project. My job will be to develop the sensor for the ore detection. The robot will be able to analyze its surroundings and distinguish the ore, that is, the mineral to extract, from the host rock. To do that, it will inject electrical currents into the rock. We are using electricity because uh, each material, each type of rock, reacts in a different uh, way when the current is injected. Each mineral has a different resistivity. 
meaning minerals with a high resistivity resist the passage of electrical currents. Minerals with low resistivity instead allow the currents to flow. The robot will test the resistivity of the minerals that surround it with electrodes working in tandem. One electrode injects the current, the other receives it. By analyzing how the current flow changed in between the two electrodes, the robot can understand what type of material it went through. Thanks to this, we can uh, differentiate the type of rocks and the type of minerals that the current is uh, passing. With the current uh, passing and uh, reading the different response that is characteristic for each rock, we can have a good picture of the underground and the rocks we are looking at. Easy peasy. But to get there, of course, there is some work to do. My work is divided in three main parts. The first part is the simulation. So with some software, we will try to recreate the environment that we are going to find in the field. We will recreate a tunnel in a mine. And in this tunnel, we will position the robots and the geophysical equipment. Then we will try to simulate how the current is going to flow inside the rock and how we will collect the information. Once this simulation is done, we will try to recreate and to verify all our hypotheses in the lab with the tanked experiment. The final uh, step is to assemble everything, so all our geophysical equipment in the robot, and to try it with all the rest of the uh, robot uh, uh, parts, so with the locomotion, with the production tool, with the drilling tool, and to see if everything works together and what we have to adjust and if everything can be used in a real mine. At this moment, I'm still running some simulation, but then I also already started my tank experiment just to start to see if uh, the first simulation I run are correct or not. I joined Georgia at the Royal Museum of Natural Sciences in Brussels, where she is running her tests in the labs of the Geological Survey of Belgium. The tank experiment is a curious thing to look at. It's a bit intimidating at first sight, a wooden structure with a lot of orange cables hanging from it like vines, something in between a container for growing tomatoes on your terrace and some Frankenstein type of equipment. Here we have what we call the tank experiment. So it's a box made in wood. On the top of the wood, we have some rays in aluminium. And uh, the box is filled with the sand. And uh, uh, in between the sands, there are some pieces of rock. So we can imagine uh, the feeling of the sand like a little sandwich. So we have uh, the slice of bread that is uh, the sand. Then we have the feeling that is our rock, so a limestone, a metallic mineral. And then we have another layer of sand that is our uh, other slice of bread. Then on the top, on the rail, we have some electrodes that are some uh, screw inserted in the, in the sand and that are connected through some jumpers to the cable. And this cable is connected to the, our equipment that is the terrameter. The terrameter is an orange box, slightly bigger than a shoebox, with a screen and a few buttons. It is the brain of the experiment. It's placed next to the wooden tank and all the coils attached to the electrodes end up in it through one big orange cable. So the experiment works that the terrameter gives uh, the, the instruction to the electrodes. Georgia first prepares a protocol, which is a file containing the instructions for the terrameter. 
how many electrodes will be working, which ones have to inject the current and which ones will receive it, how much current is to be injected and so on. Based on these instructions, the terrameter activates the electrodes. Like this, we are taking a sort of slice of our sandwich so we can see the alternation between the sand, the, the limestone and the other sand. Okay, so shall we try it? Yes. So now I'm giving the direction to the terrameter. I have to connect the cable first. And now... I got to see the terrameter in action. It's doing the test uh, of the electrodes to check that every connection is right, uh, that there is a good contact with the soil, in this case the sand. And I even witnessed a minor and hiccup. And after the test of the electrodes is done, that in this case is fail, uh, we were going to check. So one of the electrodes has a bad contact. So that okay. means that probably or is not well inserted in the ground or is not connected uh, properly to the cable. There okay. are several options. So, so in this case, we we're going to check. We're going to check that uh, there is a good connection and that the sand is well compacted around the electrode. And now we have to relaunch the test. So it will recheck that these electrodes uh -huh. has a good contact. In this case, it worked. So now it started to measure. Okay. And the time it takes depends on how many electrodes it has. On to... how many electrodes and uh, on how many points uh, you asked with the protocol. Once it has checked that all the electrodes are working properly, the terrameter sends out current and reads the current that returns to it. In the end, it displays a visual profile of what it has found on the screen. What I see looks to me like a rainbowish shape, but Georgia tells me how to read it. The profile is made of colors. It's going from blue to red, with red being the most resistive material and blue the less resistive material. So here okay. what we can see is the um, is a slightly more resistive limestone in the sand. So there is a, a little reddish line that mm -hmm. uh, indicates uh, that uh, there it's our uh, rock that we mm -hmm. are looking for. And then the rest is our background that is, uh, is the sand in this case that simulates what we call the host rock. Okay. In the next months, Georgia is going to repeat the experiment over and over again with different protocols and with different combinations of minerals in the tank. We need to simulate a different type of deposit, of mineral deposit. So that's why I have uh, uh, sand that is made completely out of quartz so to simulate quartz. And then I have uh, a yellow sand that is a mix between quartz, sand quartz and uh, clay. And then I will uh, have to buy some uh, new type of uh, maybe some gravel. And then I have uh, uh, some samples that are coming from real mines that uh, I will put in between the sand, so to, to create the feeling of our sandwich. So here I have some galena, for instance, that is uh, a sulfur of lead, or some uh, sphalerite, that is a sulfur of zinc, to see if we, can, uh, if we can see with our electrodes the zinc and the lead in between the sand. And then we are so going to simulate different geometries because not all the deposits have the same uh, geometry. 
By changing the arrangement of sand and rocks in the tank, Georgia will simulate and test different mineral configurations, so that the robot will be able not only to recognize the ore, but also to tell the shape of the deposit, whether it is a tabular deposit or a vein deposit or a disseminated deposit. The sandwich simulates what is called a tabular deposit. But it is just an appetizer. It turns out that pasta is also on the menu. And then we can also uh, simulate a disseminated uh, deposit. So the disseminated deposit, it will be something like when you throw the parmesan on your pasta. <laughs> your parmesan, it's, uh, the, it's the mineralization. And then you have all the sauce that is the host rock. So you have to look for the parmesan and not for the tomato sauce. I see. And you're going to recreate everything here in the tank. In the tank, yes. Georgia is designing the detection system of the robot in all its details. How many electrodes it will have, how they should be made, where and how they should be installed on the robot. This job is taking her out of her scientific comfort zone, and she seems to like the challenge. My background is on georesources, so it was mostly focused on how the ore deposits were formed and how to find them and how to map all the rock that we can find out there. Uh, but now with this project, I'm learning uh, really a lot because now I'm shifting my expertise uh, towards more the geophysics and the mineral exploration. It's really interesting also to be able to merge all the knowledge that you have from the, let's say, the geochemical point of view with the actual exploration and also to merge the geology with the robotic technology. I really like to work on this project because there are different disciplines involved. We are a big consortium. We are 14 partners from 11 countries and then from different backgrounds because we have geologists, we have mining engineers, then we have roboticists, of course. We have software developers. So the interaction between uh, already geology and robotics, we had to find a common ground uh, to, to communicate and to develop something that is good to, to have a greener uh, mining. Greener mining on Earth is the primary objective of the RoboMiners project. But the team is already looking beyond our planet. Once the prototype is developed and tested, we will continue hopefully to work on it. And uh, then it will be also possible to use this type of technology in extraterrestrial environment. As it is autonomous and it can be used in every type of environment, then it can be used on the moon or on Mars to retrieve uh, the minerals that we need from those planetary bodies. The elements in the entire solar system are always the same because everything was created more or less at the same moment. So the type of minerals that we will find on the moon are the same. They are uh, uh, silicate of iron that are pyroxene and olivine that we can find uh, quite commonly here on Earth. The main objective to use this type of technology on other planetary bodies is if we want to have some colony there, then we have to retrieve material. We cannot ship minerals from Earth to the moon or to Mars to build there. We have to use the resources that are on place. Planetary geology is actually another one of Georgia's passions. When I was a child, I had three main dream jobs that I wanted to do. Uh, one was uh, the archaeologist. Uh, the other one was the astronomer. 
and the other one, uh, it was geology. But then you need to know that geology actually can include both astronomy and archaeology. Uh, for instance, geology can uh, help a lot archaeologists uh, to detect uh, underground remains, uh, some ancient villa, or to check the origin of some artifacts uh, that are made of metals, for instance. And then, of course, from the part of the astronomy, we have all the field of planetary geology. So to study how those bodies were formed and to study all the processes that, are, that were ongoing and that uh, will be ongoing on the surface, like on Mars. That now we can see that uh, there were some activity of water. You can see the remains of some rivers. So geology helps us to understand how Mars looked like. Back on planet Earth, Georgia is very passionate about promoting geology as a career path. I would suggest that if you don't want to be bored with your job to become a geologist, especially if you like to stay outside, if you like uh, to stay in front of a computer as well, because now there is a lot of uh, coding and uh, modeling to be done. But as well, if you like to stay in the lab, it's a very diverse job. So you can really decide on what you want to focus If you want to spend your time in different type of environment, so not only in an office, I would say that is the job to go. <laughs> My best moments are almost uh, almost every day, I would say. And of course, uh, it's a job, so it has its uh, ups and downs. But uh, generally, I really enjoy what I'm doing. It's very nice. I'm really looking forward to going to the office in the morning. <laughs> the biggest fear that I have is that maybe I won't be able to be a geologist forever. <laughs> that I will have to change my job uh, in, uh, in the future. But she also likes to stress that loving science doesn't mean giving up your personal life. Having a job in science doesn't mean that you don't have a life. You must have an outside life. You're not just made of, uh, of your discipline. In my spare time, I like to not stay in front of a screen. I either um, paint, I do watercolor or acrylic, I'm not very good at it for the moment, but I'm working on it. <laughs> and uh, otherwise, uh, I go out for walks. Uh, so I like uh, hiking uh, or go sightseeing. And then uh, as well, I really like to swim. So that's my sport. When your brain is resting and is doing something else, then the time you spend on your research is more productive. So you have more external stimuli, having different uh, things that you do outside of work, then you can also have different approach on the things you're doing during your research. Because if you're only doing the same things constantly 24 hours, at a certain point you reach a dead end and you don't know how to exit it. By not having a life outside your job, you're not doing yourself a favor as a researcher. Like Georgia, more and more researchers are realizing that academic martyrdom in the end is counterproductive. It is possible to have a healthy work-life balance as a scientist. And the new generation of researchers and academics can change things. I asked Georgia if she has any piece of advice for aspiring young scientists. If you're wondering if you would like to do a career in science, not only geology specifically, but also any other scientific discipline, just do it. It might sound scary. You might think that it's an uncertain future. Don't be scared. The most important thing is that you have fun in what you're doing. So just go for it, especially if you are a woman, because you can do it. 
and uh, there's nothing there to stop you. Things are changing and they will continue to change. So things will go on for the better. And uh, we have to demonstrate that we can do it. Last but not least, Georgia is an enthusiastic science communicator. She's very committed in making people understand the importance of geology in their everyday life. Geology is uh, really everywhere in our daily life. It's uh, not only in maybe the rocks that are outside our house, in the bricks uh, and uh, other structural things, but it's also inside in the paintings that are on our walls. It's uh, on everything we use now, okay, in TV, all the type of electronics, but also in the lamps, uh, everywhere. <laughs> Beside the, the RoboMiners project, I'm also involved in science communication uh, project. I really like to help the younger generation to know geology and to understand uh, what's the deal with it and how much do we need geology and geologists. After interviewing Georgia, I've started looking at the world around me with different eyes. I walk on the street and wonder what would not be there if we were not extracting materials from the earth. And the answer is pretty much everything. Everything metallic to begin with, then concrete, electrical cables, glass. There wouldn't be buildings, probably, or not the kind we're used to, which demand metals and stones or clay for the bricks, at the very least. Electronics and all the digital tools we use in our everyday life would be gone. Even the instruments on which they played this music. And no microphones, so you wouldn't be hearing my voice. It's a fun rabbit hole, you should try it too. Look around yourself right now. Most of the objects you see are made of, or were manufactured with, materials that were extracted from the earth which means that, somehow, there is geology behind them. This was the pilot episode of Alice in Wonderlab, a podcast about science and the women who make it. Alice in Wonderlab is a production of Cali Acoustics, and Cali Acoustics is me, Maria Conterno, plus all the wonderful people you will hear me thank along the way. The first thank you goes to Gazalda Biri for her precious feedback on the script. And of course, huge thanks to Georgia Stasi, the protagonist of this episode, for her time, patience and enthusiasm. You can see pictures of Georgia and of the tank experiment on the posts for this episode on Khalid Acoustics' Facebook page and Instagram. Finally, in this podcast we will also hear from aspiring Alices, girls who dream about a future in science, just like Paige. Hi, my name is Paige. I'm from Newton, Massachusetts, and currently I'm a high school junior. What I would like to do in the future is major in biochemistry in college and then get a job in the science field. What drives me about science is that it both combines my natural curiosity about the world around me and my passion for learning. I feel like science is the perfect way to do both. I am currently looking for funds to support the production of the podcast. I hope more episodes will come soon. If you want to get updates, follow Khalid Acoustics on Facebook or Instagram. Stay in touch.